Please pray with me. God, who took on the sins of the earth, bore them freely, moved to a tomb where many thought you would stay. We praise you this morning that you have offered us life as you found your way out of that grave into new life that we can join in. We thank you for the opportunity to serve your kingdom, and we ask that as we stand before you this morning uh, seeking your way, that you would offer that to us, that your spirit would give us fresh vision, that your spirit would give us fresh life to follow after you. We pray this in your name. Amen. From Luke 24, very early in the morning on the first day of the week, the women went to the tomb, bringing the fragrant spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. They didn't know what to make of this. Suddenly, two men were standing beside them in gleaming bright clothing. The women were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He isn't here, but has been raised. Remember that he told you while he was still in Galilee that the human one must be handed over to sinners, be crucified, and on the third day rise again. Then they remembered his words. When they returned from the tomb, they reported all these things to the eleven and all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. Their words struck the apostles as nonsense, and they didn't believe the women. But Peter ran to the tomb. When he bent over to look inside, he saw only the linen cloth. Then he returned home, wondering what had happened. On that same day, two disciples were traveling to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking to each other about everything that had happened. While they were discussing these things, Jesus himself arrived and joined them on their journey. They were prevented from recognizing him. When you lose somebody you love, people often say that the worst day is the day after the funeral. That initial shock, it starts to thin. The distraction of, of all the burial preparations is over. Your gathered friends and family scatter, and you're left to face the full magnitude of your loss. Well, everyone's experience is different, I suppose, but one thing I can tell you for sure, Sunday was the worst day of my life. Friday is seared into my memory as this series of sensory snapshots. The, the sharp crack of the whip and the soft thump of a hammer. That smell 
of blood and sweat mingling with fear. The the chill in the air when the sky just suddenly went dark. The sight of his mother bent double, sobbing into the ground. The terror of wondering which one of us was about to be next. But, you know, the funny thing about trauma is how some details are preserved with perfect clarity while entire blocks of time are completely erased. Saturday, those of us who loved him sat together in stunned silence. Our voices were lost from all the shouting and the wailing and... Anyway, what was there left to say? Hadn't every sign for years indicated that he was the one sent to rescue us? Hadn't he been welcomed to the capital city just six days ago with fanfare fit for a king? Our minds replayed the events of the last week again and again, trying to make sense of them. The the, the teachings, the meals, the healings, the confrontation in the temple. Was that where it all went wrong? Was that our chance to stop him? But no amount of second guessing would change the outcome here. Sunday, Sunday was the worst day of all. Because on Sunday, that dense fog of shock and terror finally gave way to a clear day of total despair. All our other thoughts and feelings were overwhelmed with one consuming realization. Gone. He's gone. He's gone. God has surely abandoned these lands. But against all will and reason, the empty world went on. The Sabbath's stillness was broken by the whimpers of restless children and the clatter of cartwheels out on the street. The women rose before first light and began kneading dough for our first meal since Thursday. And the men stole glances out the window and debated whether the streets were safe yet for the former friends of a dead rebel. Suddenly the door of the house where we were staying was thrown open and we all drew back in fear, shoving the children behind us. But it was only a few of our own women. With all of them gasping and talking at once, it was almost impossible to make sense of what they were saying. What we finally made out that they'd gone to his tomb before first light to cry and rub spices into the body. Yes, they knew there was a giant boulder covering it. No, Peter, they didn't have a plan for what they were going to do about it. But when they got to the tomb, yes, the right tomb, they're sure. They discovered it was open and empty. And what's more, they met two strange-looking men in the graveyard who claimed he was alive and going ahead of them. Could they possibly have been angels? It was clear the fear and loss had been too much for these poor women. To keep them from getting even more hysterical, Peter and John agreed to go check things out. 
they brought back their report. The tomb was indeed empty of all but a pile of clothes, but there was no sign of anything else going on there, certainly no sign of angels or dead men walking around. The body, it seemed, had been stolen. One final insult to the dead. Maybe stuffed in another tomb, perhaps, or, heaven forbid, tossed in a ditch to the dogs. Well, it might sound strange to you, but in a week of unimaginable blows, this was the one that finally broke us. What we'd lost even a place to remember the man who'd promised to change the world. As the news began to spread across the house and the weeping began all over again, I pulled my older brother Cleopas aside and I said, I can't take this anymore. I just want to go home to Emmaus. There's nothing left for us here anyway. And Cleo took one look at my desperate face and agreed. So we said hasty goodbyes to the friends we had planned to spend the rest of our lives with. And we slipped out quietly into the streets. We didn't slow or speak until Jerusalem's walls had disappeared behind us. And when there was nothing in front of us but the rolling hills and the dusty road, I took my first full breath in three endless days. <sighs> Do you remember when we first saw him? Cleo asked suddenly. <laughs> How could I forget? What naive little radicals we'd been back then, full of big plans for our people. We'd been secretly meeting for several years with a group of other people who shared our ambition of an independent Jewish state. We would stay up late into the night debating timing and tactics for how we were going to drive the Romans out. One of our compatriots returned from a trip to the north, brought back word of a young teacher from Nazareth that he said seemed to be like-minded. Cleo and I decided to travel north to investigate the rumors. We arrived at the hillside by the lake late one afternoon where thousands of people were gathered listening to him speak. What we heard there exceeded even our expectations. He was indeed speaking of a revolutionary new kingdom that he said was ordained by God, where the poor would be enfranchised, where people who'd spent their lives mourning would finally laugh, where the humble and the meek would inherit everything. But we were so excited by what he was saying that we were almost sad when the teacher announced a break for dinner. There was just so much more we wanted to hear. But when the teacher held up a couple dinner rolls and a few sardines and said no one should go anywhere because supper was on him. I can tell you more eyebrows than ours went up. And Cleo and I examined our position as latecomers to the party on the very outskirts of the crowd and Cleo joked, well, you think the odds are they'll save a couple fish eyes for us? 
But a couple hours later, after both of us had consumed an entire loaf of bread and half our weight in fish, and helped carry basketfuls of leftovers to the front, there was no more joking. We were both flushed with wonder and excitement. A charismatic teacher and a miracle worker, he was a prophet of old, like Elijah, come back to life. We had found the person we'd been waiting for, the flag bearer of our revolution. We were dazzled by him. That evening, we found a group of his disciples, and from then on out, we followed him. How do I even describe to you the months that followed? We would enter these villages nearly crushed by mobs of desperate people. And we would leave in a parade of the singing mute and dancing lame. Everywhere we went, people cried out his name and stretched their hands out toward him. They stretched out their hands toward us just because we were with him. We walked beside him from village to village, repeating his cleverest stories and asking him questions like, when this new kingdom was going to start exactly. We helped organize the rowdy crowds eager for their chance to be seen. We shared dinner with him late at night and watched him laugh in the glow of the candles as we shared our favorite stories of lives that had been changed. And every place we went, he announced a new kingdom under God that was starting soon. The people loved him. The crowds were eating from the palm of his hand. The civic authorities were quaking in their sandals. Every day, it became clearer. We'd found the one sent by God to finally end our suffering and crush all of our oppressors. Our kingdom was on its way, and our king was right in front of us. Everyone adored him. How could they not? We loved him too. And then, in a moment, it was all over. Who would have thought it would end like this? Cleo said bitterly, kicking up dust. The brilliant healer, torn apart. The the mighty herald of a grand new kingdom, nailed to his throne. The divinely appointed prophet, completely abandoned by God. All those grand claims he made, but when push came to shove, he couldn't back it up. He didn't even fight. We gambled everything on him, and here we are with nothing. I was less angry than Cleo, but for all that, maybe sadder. I just can't believe that he's gone. Did you see that paralyzed man lying outside the gate this morning? Who will help him now? Who will help any of us? After all those promises, I just can't believe he'd leave us here, alone. But we were so absorbed in our misery that we didn't see the traveler overtaking us on the road. I didn't even notice him making pace next to me until he startled me by speaking. What is it the two of you are discussing that leaves you in such despair? 
I sighed and stared at my shoes, but Cleo, like usual, got angry. Are you a stranger from some foreign planet that you could possibly have missed the stuff going down in Jerusalem these past few days? The traveler asked curiously, what stuff exactly are you referring to? Before Cleo could say anything harsh, I jumped in. He's talking about Jesus of Nazareth. He was an inspired teacher and an incredible miracle worker. All the people loved him, at least until this week. He could have done anything if he'd been given the chance. But our own leaders turned him over to the Romans for execution, and he, he died on Friday morning. Cleo jumped back in. Oh, we'd hoped he was the one to finally redeem Israel. He gave every indication of it, you know, with his power and his following and all those grand new kingdom speeches. Well, who could blame us for concluding that he was the one God had sent to finally make things right? But three days he's been dead now, and the world goes on just the same. As dark and twisted as it ever was. So you can see what good it is waiting on God to act these days. Somewhere in the midst of the conversation, the three of us had stopped walking. The traveler stood there in his dusty robes with his head cocked, listening intently. I said, you'll have to forgive my brother. It's just we suffered an added blow today. A few of our women went to the tomb before dawn to anoint his body, but when they got there, they discovered the tomb was empty. They claimed they'd seen visions of angels who said he was alive, but none of us saw any sign of anything. At this statement, the traveler got a strange look in his eye. He gave what sounded like an exasperated sigh, and he said, are you guys really this dense, or do you just not believe a single word the prophets have said? Don't you get that God's chosen one had to suffer? That suffering is the path by which God's servants conquer? Well, needless to say, we were a bit taken aback by the passion of this reply from someone who two minutes earlier had appeared completely unaware of the tragedy. And noticing our sidelong glances at each other, the traveler gestured down the road and said, Walk with me for a while, and I'll try and explain this to you. Have you ever been in a crowded room, and you're looking for someone intently? And you're so focused on the specific thing that you're looking for that you miss the person standing directly in front of you? Well, it's like that a lot with God, you know? What you see depends on what you were looking for. If your expectations aren't set right, you can miss the big thing happening right in front of you. And then the traveler began to take us on a journey through the scriptures. He reminded us of the story of Moses, who, whose divinely appointed rescue mission encountered opposition at every turn. He talked about the psalmist who said that the kings and powers of the world would resist the work of God. 
He, he spoke of the psalmist's prophetic insight that the stone the builders threw away is flawed. God has used as the foundation of the whole building. The traveler said to us, you all have been expecting a deliverer. But you expected that when God acted, it would look in a particular way. You expected that when God showed up to finally make the world right, it would be with overwhelming force and a show of arms. And then he began to speak to us about the prophet Isaiah. Specifically, Isaiah's prophecies of a mysterious figure he called the suffering servant. Our scholars had been studying these writings for centuries without making any sense of it. But the traveler said to us, according to Isaiah, the true servant of God is not immune to hardship. He knows pain and suffering well. He's not kingly in appearance. He's wounded, disfigured, scarred. He suffers. He suffers the judgment brought on by other people. But after he has suffered, Isaiah's words are clear. He will see the light of life again, and he will be satisfied with what he's chosen. Because he knows that from his death, life will come for many more. Because he knows, he understands that suffering love is the way evil is defeated and God's victory assured. As the traveler spoke, my chest began to burn as if a spark had been struck within me. I was startled to look up and see Emmaus looming in front of us. We were nearly home. The traveler looked ready to continue on the road, but we begged him, don't go on tonight, come home with us, be our guest, share our dinner table. And he agreed. Well, the sun had long since set when the dinner preparations were finally over. I laid the bread and figs on the table and lit the lamps so that the room was filled with the warm glow of flickering light. As I lowered myself to recline at the table next to my brother and our new friend, that odd feeling from the road washed over me again. It felt like that spark was growing into a full-fledged fire. What was happening to me? Do you mind if I say the prayer for our dinner tonight? The traveler asked. Well, it's hardly proper to leave the dinner prayer to the guest, but... After a week like ours, maybe someone else's prayer is more effective anyway. The traveler prayed a simple prayer based on the scripture. Blessed are you, our Lord and God, who give a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of despair. You have hidden your greatest mysteries from the wise and from the learned, and you have revealed them to fools and little children. Because that, God, is your very great pleasure. And with that, he took a loaf of bread and broke it.
my breath caught in my chest. Something in that gesture was so achingly familiar. As he extended the loaf of bread toward me, my eyes fastened on the hands holding it. In the center of each was a jagged hole, the unmistakable mark of a nail. I cried out, Jesus! And just like that, he vanished from our sight. But friends, know this for certain. What I saw was real. I met Jesus on the road toward home. He walked with me. He talked with me. He sat there at my table as he'd done a thousand times before. And I knew him. I knew him. Once I had finally learned to truly see. He is alive. His upside-down revolution goes onward, and he's still leading it. Ever since that worst, best Sunday, I haven't stopped looking over my shoulder. Every day, I wake up and I wonder, where might I see him next? Next? 